You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, Episode 10. Richard and Carol Foster are documentary filmmakers specializing in natural history and the environment. Working out of their jungle studio in Belize, they have made films for the major networks, including National Geographic and the BBC, which include parts of the Planet Earth and Life series. The Fosters are highly experienced at bringing to the screen the intricate hidden stories of natural behavior. Living with the rainforests and the barrier reef on their doorstep, they have the opportunity to find and film material not easily achieved by visiting filmmakers. Throughout their 28-year career, they have worked all over the world winning multiple awards for their work, including two Emmys. Their work includes the films Land of the Anaconda, Rat Wars, Night Stalkers, Predator Bats of Central America, Journey Through the Underworld, Jungle Nights, Feasts of the Giant Sharks, Realm of the Serpent, and Jaguar Year of the Cat, to name just a few. They are currently using their skills to highlight the threats to the environment and nature by man and climate change, subjects to which they are passionately committed. Hi, Richard and Carol. Thank you so much for taking the time out this morning to uh, to spend some time on the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you guys here. How are you doing? We're doing very well, and we're glad to be on the podcast with you. It's going sounds like it's really fun. Thank you. It is. This is, you know, it's such a great um, resource for aspiring wildlife filmmakers. And to get to speak to uh, seasoned wildlife filmmaking professionals like yourselves is um, always, you know, a complete pleasure. So again, I thank you for being here. Um, actually, one of the things I wanted to get started with was to get a bit of background on you guys and find out how you guys met and how you got into wildlife filmmaking. Yeah, I, I, Karen and I met down in Panama. I'd, I'd been filming for a number of years before that. Uh, we, uh, Carol was a researcher down there working with the Smithsonian. But uh, I, my career started here in Belize way back. I was a yachtsman for 12 years before I got into filmmaking. And uh, while I was on board a boat, I uh, bought myself a little hand wine Bolex. Uh, natural history films really were in their infancy then. And I'm talking about sort of early 70s, very early 70s. And um, uh, just a little hand wine Bolex and started shooting uh, 100-foot rolls and uh, sending them back to UK. And I got a, a company called Partridge Films uh, interested in what I was doing. And that's what really started me on the road. So it was very much um, you just out there doing your own thing and just kind of putting your footage out there and seeing if anyone would take it up. Uh, yes, there really, you know, but, uh, in those days, Belize was full of wildlife. And I thought, my gosh, this is a perfect place to start a career. I'd seen while well, I was living in the Galapagos Islands years ago, filmmakers, and it's something I, I really, really wanted to get into. And uh, I thought, my goodness, this is the place to start. So that's what I did. I moved ashore from the boats and uh, with my uh, with my little bollocks and uh, started shooting 100 foot rolls and got Mike Rosenberg of Partridge Films interested in I was doing and he basically backed us um I would uh, done one film and then after that I met Carol down in Panama when we were doing a series called Fragile Earth um and that's when Carol um made a decision to join me and make it we've been working as a team ever since 
Wow, that's fantastic. And so, Carol, what were you doing in Panama when you met Richard? Well, I was in Panama. I was working for scientists. I, I didn't have my PhD. I had a master's in biology, and then I had a master's in medical technology. And in Panama at the time, working with the Smithsonian Tropical Research um, Institute, they didn't have many people that had my background. So when I went down there, I was able to study everything from spider web dynamics to to monkeys to lizard malaria to you can name it. I've been doing it. And that's when I met Richard. Now, in the beginning, we did not like filmmakers because they bothered us all the time. And I was like... <laughs> Oh my God, here comes another filmmaker. But Richard really was more of a naturalist and he stayed behind and waited until, you know, we were ready for him to film. He was great. So that's how we met. And, um, and so when I, I made a decision, I thought, wow, it would be so good to show my research on film or to show other people's research on film because my passion is uh, showing behavior and showing people what it's all about. So then um, Richard asked me, would I like to help him? And I said, sure, I'd like to help you. And so when I met him there and helped him, I moved back to the States. He went to Borneo. We kept in touch. And then, we, and then he said to me, he moved to Belize, and then he said, do you want to come to Belize and do wildlife documentaries? And, man, I was studying malaria in um, in, 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 in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, in the cold winter, and I said, yes, I want to come to Belize. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that's when I came to Belize, and I started with Richard. Oh, that's a, that's a fantastic story. So what's it like working with your spouse on a daily basis um, when you're filmmaking? Ah, should, I, should I start this one out? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you go. Go ahead. Well, you know, you know the, the number of couples we met over the years that have split because the husband was doing the filmmaking and the wife was not really involved. And uh, they sort of grew apart. The husband would be away for months at a time. And they simply didn't work. We were very lucky because we were both interested and passionate about what we were doing. We worked as a team and complemented each other. The things that I was good at um, and Carol was good at sort of complemented um, one another and um, we worked as a perfect team really and it has taken us all over the world and uh, of course we're still doing it but not as much as we were yeah, and, and we know a lot of people who stayed together, like the Halls, I think that you have interviewed, and Joubert's, and, and there's a lot of people that did stay together because they had the same passion we had. And so w when when I started, Richard was already shooting, and so he knew, how, you know, he was really a fantastic cinematographer and already starting to produce. And when I started from scratch, like, I was the one doing the sound, carrying the equipment, you know. And then I worked my way up into producing and to and to doing everything. So together we do everything. And then now I do stills. But, but yeah, and I started stills a while ago. So um, basically um, we, we – and then the only time we have a problem is when we're – we're starting a film and we both have maybe a slightly different ideas on how we want to see it done. Then the arguments start. But then but then we kind of calm down and say, okay, let's let's try to see what would be the best way to do it. So that's, that's yeah. our only problem. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I didn't want to go down that road of how many arguments do you have over the films, but <laughs> but, that, but it was in the answer anyway, so that's fantastic. Hey, arguments are healthy. They get they clear the air and yeah. uh, usually get you to the best product at the end of it. That's great. That's great. Well, um, you kind of touched upon your roles there, and my next question was going to be, what roles do you take on? Can you just elaborate a bit more about how you work together and and the particular roles you have when you go on to um, onto a project? Oh, oh, well, basically, uh, Richard does most of the cinematography. I will do some, like, as a B-roll or something, but he does most of it. He also, when we do people, he directs, we both direct kind of together. So, for instance, if I can't go on a shoot and he can only go on a shoot, then we talk about what we need to get and how we need to get it, and then he does that. But it's always good to have that second eye there or that eye there so if Richard's tunneled in on something and I see something else then we we do it together um, basically we do everything together if if there's something that we need for research and we need to go out in the field and watch it I don't mind sitting there watching a long time and seeing what happens or we work along with researchers so so the researchers help us get the footage we need so basically we, we don't we work together in that in that respect. So producing, I usually produce and get all that stuff over with, you know. That's the stuff with the, you know, getting the get, money and all that crap, that you, really enjoy. you know. Yeah. And then I get to the stuff I really enjoy. So, so we basically do both. So yeah, yeah. he's mostly the cinematographer. I'll usually produce and get the, the money and all that stuff. And then the other stuff we do, it's all meshed in together. That makes sense? <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> well, we, yeah. We, we, we also do, nowadays, we do, um, you know, for years we made this, what do you want to call it, eye candy, uh, the, the, the beautiful stuff for entertainment, for Geographic and BBC. But nowadays we're doing more down-to-earth stuff, conservation work, uh, sort of payback, if you like, for all the stuff that uh, we've done over the years. And we take up issues in the country about... It could be a single animal. It could be an environment. And we make short films for local consumption and also for fundraising for NGOs and such like. And doing those, we make the entire film here. We come up with the, the concept. We, uh, we write it. Uh, I shoot most of it. And then Carol does the, the editing. And uh, we, we write the narration together. So we're, we're a sort of one-band band, really, uh, doing all kinds of stuff like that. And then, of course, we also do pieces for BBC and National Geographic. They contact us months ahead, and we set up situations. You know, as you know, nowadays, um, everything is done in 4K. The equipment is incredibly expensive. Uh, therefore, they can only spend a short length of time with the rental equipment and the field. And so we spend sometimes months setting things up. Uh, for uh, a project for a sequence. Oh, that's really, really interesting. And, and that was going to be one of my questions is kind of how have things evolved. And we'll we'll definitely get there and, and talk about some of that. But um, what I find super interesting is with most husband and wife teams, um, you know, it's always so great to really know your crew because you do work like a, as a one-man band. You know, you're thinking the same things and, and you can discuss more and just be prepared, um, you know, more as a unit going into the field and, and doing a production. And I know from my filming days, having the same crew and going out all the time would, would end up with a much better result than ending up in the field with people you didn't know every time you went out. And uh, so I can see that as a big plus having, um, you know, each other to be there all the time. Yes, but 
Also, we excuse me, uh, we, we do also, sometimes we have five-part series we had, and we did hire other people to, like other, another cinematographer or somebody else's associate producer to help us. And there's people that we know that's in the business that we worked with or with in with the National Geographic before. So we had other people with us. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, definitely the way to go. Um, you know, uh, nowadays, anyway, the equipment has shrunk. <laughs> and, uh, you know, two people can really achieve an awful lot by themselves. And um, we, we don't need really large crews to help us in the field. So, um, you know, nowadays with the small cameras and things, we do very well with just the two of us. Now, you guys have... Um, been all over the world you've been uh, filmed for national geographic the bbc i believe you <clears throat> have done uh, work with planet earth on planet earth and the life series um how was it in those days of those kind of big productions um what was your kind of production life like would it be jumping from one big production to the next or would there be time in between where you'd be out working on your own projects what was kind of a typical year in the life of the fosters well basically a lot of the films in the beginning were ecology films uh, a place film so we'd be in a place for a long time in fact sometimes we'd be in a place for a whole year if you can imagine you can't even imagine that these days because there's no money for it you know, everything's put into equipment but we would be able to get detailed really detailed behavior where today you get behavior but you don't get that detailed behavior like we used to and so we were we did jump from place to place that sometimes when we had an hour and two half hours or two half hours we'd have to go to venezuela then we'd have to be in india um and then we'd have to be back in belize and um but we had time in each in each place or we'd have to go back to it but there was time there for us to do it these days there's not but we as i, I noticed that there's beautiful stuff out there it's gorgeous behavior when they have time to get it but we were able to get that behavior and i can't imagine if we could do that now with the 4k that would be uh, fantastic but yes i think you know um getting animal behavior time you know and it nature runs its own speed so you know you can't rush these things if you're making a, a film about an environment um you have to be there for the seasons and um you know, we uh, we would sometimes take on two half hours for geographic, and um, uh, it would take a whole year to do because we need the dry season, the wet season, the breeding seasons for the various animals. So you know, we um, we we followed through. So yes, I mean things definitely have changed quite dramatically in the production industry. I mean it was that you guys would spend days and days, months, years, what have you, out there just to get um, behavior, and we've seen that change, you know, in the final programming as well. I mean now the productions that are on TV are much faster. They obviously have been recorded in a much smaller time frame, um, apart from the kind of big blue chip um, uh, productions. So. With that said, how how has life changed for you now with the productions? Do you and you had mentioned you still work with the BBC and Nat Geo from time to time? Um, what do you spend your days? Can you elaborate a bit more on those projects that you work on now? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, with uh, as you were saying, with a huge cost of equipment now, they can't spend very long in the field. We've been doing this stuff for a number of years now. We get contacted well ahead by the BBC or National Geographic, and they want a specific thing they're doing. Uh, we recently did Margate Cats for the Wild, what the Wildcat series of the BBC. They were here for ten days, but we spent uh, the best part of a month setting up the set, getting the cat trained to jump in slow motion you know uh, so it was a lot of work a lot of prep um, and this style of, of shooting has been going on for quite a while now uh, for us especially in rainforests where things are so difficult to get and uh, a crew coming down for a short visit can really just get uh, you know very small um, cameo stuff like going to the Belize Zoo getting shots of the cats and things but no real behavior so it's up to us to set the thing, situations up for these people when they come sometimes we shoot with them they'll give us a second camera to get an, um, you know, a, a, a different angle but um, yeah it's uh, we don't do much uh, in the way of full films anymore apart from our own conservation work we do. We just did a Hickety film, a Hickety turtle. It's a turtle that's endangered. It's critically endangered in Belize. We do. Um, we, so we'll go out to the field and we'll go film as much as we can uh, on Hickety in the in the field. And that um, there's somebody that's actually raising them, and there's a whole organization, a conservation organization, that wants to save them. So they asked us, would we do a film and to bring that out? So we go around and we do shoot in Belize. Mainly, we do most of our shooting now in Belize. We don't go most of the other countries now. We mostly stay here. So we did one on that. We did one on the whale sharks, the whale sharks um, down south, because we have a lot of whale sharks here in Belize. So we've done productions and we go on the ocean. Richard does underwater uh, footage. So we do do stuff here in Belize. So um, so it's like when a conservation group wants to do something, they lots of times come to us for that. And so we do that here in Belize. A lot of times, too, people don't realize that when we used to go to Africa and we used to go to other places, open areas, we were able to get a lot of um, footage out in the wild. But in working in the tropical rainforest, it is very difficult. And so a lot of things has to be done in huge sets, enclosures. So mainly we build a set where we we'd have like the regular habitat of an animal, say we're doing bats. And so we would do the bats, we'd have their habitat, we'd catch the bats, we'd train them, put them in the set, and then after we were done filming them, put them back out into the wild. And, and if you're ever in the tropical rainforest, you'll see, if you see a, a, a margay cat or if you see a snake, you'll be lucky. And that, that brings up the, a, a great question of, um, you know, when you talk about how much time it takes, how much prep to get uh, a production together like that. And of course, this is, this is wildlife we're speaking about. So even when you've done all of that prep, you know, and you're in a, a highly humid environment like that where technology doesn't always work well and, uh, and then the wildlife doesn't necessarily do what you wanted to do when you wanted to do it. Um, what are some of those trials and tribulations that you guys have faced while filming? Um, and how have you overcome some of those? Well, you know, we've developed a lot of tricks over the years living here in this high humidity and heat. And of course, with equipment, it's a, it's a major concern. And every piece of equipment that we have lives in pelican boxes with bags of silica gel, which are cooked regularly to keep them dry. And we have stuff that we've had 
lenses we've had to over 20 years and they, they still look absolutely perfect so we you know we've we've got over that the equipment problem a quite a long time ago and uh it's worked very well for us now there, there was i know from um there was a show that you guys were both on called uh filming wildlife behind the scenes um a few years back a documentary showing filmmakers in the field and the kind of work that they undertook and i know in that um in that show that carol got very sick in venezuela carol is that something that you want to expand upon tell us a bit about that um that journey and that experience then yeah, um, what happened to me is um, when we were filming in Venezuela, I wasn't I wasn't exactly feeling up to par. But anyway, we were out filming, and uh, when we first started, I was fine. I was working out in the field, and then all of a sudden, I got this shooting pain from my lower back all the way up to my all the way up to my head and through my spine, and uh, my legs went, and so. Um, before that, I was not feeling good, so I said, Jesus, maybe we figured out what's wrong with me now. So I was right in the swamp in Venezuela, and they medevaced me out into Caracas. And I had a, there was a great neurologist there who lifted up my legs and said, oh, he goes, what can I do for you here? And I said, well, I just said, fix my legs. So he did an MRI, and he saw a lesion on my back, and he says, I think you have multiple sclerosis. And I said, okay, now what do I do? I said, just like, let's get me out of here. I want to go back into the field. So he actually took me to the radiologist. We saw the lesions. He, I was in the hospital for 10 days, got the medication I needed to bring down the inflammation of the nerves, and I went back out into the field. And I was, they carried me around. They had me in a director's chair. We went in the swamp. And I continued working. And um, it was funny because as I'm working, Richard and everybody's out looking for this big female. And this guy carried me into the swamp and put me on a director's chair. And we couldn't find the female. And I saw these birds going crazy in the swamp. And I said, she's over there, she's over there. And nobody listened to me. And then Richard went over there and said, I feel a tire under my feet. And it happened to be the female that was there. So, see, I was still doing my job even with no legs. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean that you, you are a true inspiration to filmmakers because to have found out something that um, that huge, and to go back out and to be carried around and to to you know just just carry on the way you did is incredible and my hat's off to you um for that um you know the, it was an incredible show uh and actually i was going to ask you about the anaconda scene in there in venezuela um marching through the swamp with bare feet uh trying to locate uh, the anaconda but not only that uh, Richard I believe you talk about all of the other um, dangerous animals that are kind of lurking there in the swamp um, can you can you go back kind of over that and tell us a bit more about um, what that was like yes absolutely um, you know uh, you have to be really passionate to do this business well and prepared to go to any lengths to get what you want to do. So, you know, climbing into the swamp next to this Venezuelan biologist with bare feet was really no big deal because we had to do this. And I mean, this was going to be potentially an amazing movie, especially with this guy finding anacondas with his bare feet. So we went right in there with him. And, you know, okay, there was potential for 
caiman down there. There was electric eels. There was uh, electric rays, I think. There were piranha. There were all kinds of things in there. We got away pretty good, actually, consider all considering. Um, and the anacondas actually won't bite you underwater. You, you've got to... Um, uh, you've got to uh, pull them out before they actually realize they're being molested. Um, in that particular location, there was a lot of cattle. It was a big ranch, and the anacondas were used to being trodden on by um, by cattle, by capybara. So when you actually touched them with your feet, they weren't too worried. But then what you had to do was to work your way. You pull up a coil, and you see which way the scales are pointing. And then you worked your way down to the tail. And you're talking about something that could be 16, 17, maybe 18 feet long. Big, big, big snake. And you'd find the tail. And then you'd start pulling. And you'd pull the whole snake out of the, out of the, 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 the ooze underneath onto the hyacinths on the top. And that's when hell absolutely broke loose. Yeah. The thing would turn around and try and bite you all the time. And this is where Jesus, the researcher, would come in. He's a big, strong, macho fellow. And he would take a flying leap and catch the snake by the neck. <laughs> wow. And then there was somebody else, it could be me or one of the other researchers, um, would grab the coil that the snake was trying to wrap around Jesus. Because once the coil's on there, you have big trouble because these are very strong. So you keep the coil off him, and um, Jesus would pull a sock out of his pocket and work his way around and get the head get the head inside the sock and pull it down and then tape around the neck. That meant that the snake couldn't bite you and he couldn't see you. And that thing's quieted down a bit after that. But it was potentially a, a pretty hairy situation because those snakes are so powerful and they want to get away and their instinct is to throw a coil around you and give you a, a heck of a squeeze. So it was an amazing time. Yeah, but one time, one time was interesting. Richard's filming and he had two people with him and the snake was just running on the hyacinth and he we saw him moving around so Richard set up the tripod it was a low tripod he went down there and he went to take a shot of the uh, snake moving towards him and as he was moving towards him it went up and nearly bit it his struck at me, he yeah. struck at him and nearly bit his ear off but instead it got the rim it was the um, camera covering uh, the, the, the hood the rubber the ho hood, the rubber took a, hood took a piece out of it yeah. it took a piece of piece out of the rubber hood and we still have that today we saved that for our, <laughs> our, our memento <laughs> wow well i mean that that's quite an astonishing um experience and it, it it raises the question about kind of understanding wildlife and this is something i'm asked a lot and i try and um give advice to young aspiring filmmakers who are trying to get into wildlife filmmaking about um, you know, it's far more important to understand wildlife than it is filmmaking. The, the fundamentals of filmmaking will never really change, uh, but technology is changing all the time. And I know with so many people I speak to that a lot of filmmakers are desperately trying to master everything there is uh, about a camera uh, and they really aren't spending too much time worrying about wildlife. Um, what, what do you guys have to say about that, you know, just in terms of understanding wildlife um, when you're looking to get into this kind of industry? Well, for one thing... Um you have to have the wildlife before you have the equipment. And you have to really know the behavior of animals and have not only a plan A, a plan B. So, for instance, if you're doing an insect or something like that and it has a really interesting behavior and you only want to just go do that insect, you, you should have a plan B in case it's seasonal and something's not happening. But 
but you can have the equipment and the equipment most of the equipment now is still fine high definition and everything else but um you really have to know the behavior of animals before you can even get started if you're doing wildlife documentaries and you have you should have some sort of background and should have some really good researcher to research it out um before you could, could get the technology Ahead, right. Yeah. You know, um, we meet so many people coming down here who um, simply just don't get it. They don't understand wildlife. They don't understand the, the natural cycles of things and how long it takes. And they say, well, we're, we're here for 24 hours and we want to get this, this and this and this. You know, and we look at each other and say, look, that ain't going to work. You know, working generally, the BBC are the ones that we really enjoy working with because most of the uh, producers and most of the camera people, the cameramen, get it. They understand nature. They understand the natural rhythms and the difficulties of getting the uh, animals. And they also have a very strict code, too, about <clears throat> how animals are, are, are treated, you know, in the set sort of situation. And we are very, very careful with our animals and, uh, you know, making sure that they're well, well looked after. And if we catch them from the wild, we always take them back and release them where we have them, uh, we get them. And people, you know, people outside the business of natural history, they may be wonderful filmmakers, they may know the equipment incredibly well, but they don't get what is involved with nature. And that's the crucial thing about the whole business, I think. You've got to have a, a passion to do it, and you've got to have an understanding and some basic knowledge of how nature works. Yeah, but you're right. We get that a lot with the, with the new upcoming uh, filmmakers. They do get into their equipment more than get into the behavior. And then they look to us to get them the behavior. And then when we try to tell them how to get the behavior, they're going, oh, I can't get it with this equipment. Well, that's when the research should have happened, you know. They should right. have researched it, right? Absolutely. So so it's so paramount to w what you're going to get at the end of the day, not only understanding the behavior so you're prepared to get the, the money shot, let's say, when it happens, but also just knowing up front what gear you're going to need because if it's too heavy or, or the wrong kind of camera, then you're just not going to get the, you know, what you're expecting. And I, I think that's so super valuable. Um, on that yeah, note absolutely. of... Sorry, go ahead. And you've got, to you've got to mesh the two together. They both got to meet. I mean, you know, the really, really good filmmakers and the really good cameramen, and the, we get the best of the best coming out here visiting from BBC usually. You know, they're, they're, they're incredible tech guys. They're biologists. And they, and they can handle stress, you know, and under, under, under a lot of pressure. And those are the valuable things, I think, that... Um, um, you know, a filmmaker and a natural history filmmaker needs to have to be really good at it. Now, speaking of um, uh, technology and um, different types of cameras and what have you, um, I believe you guys in a back cave in Belize did some cutting edge filming with a thermal camera some years back. Can you tell us a bit about that? About, about, uh, about, the, about the thermal camera we used, yes, it was from yes. the military. And um, go ahead, Richard, you can okay. go ahead. Yeah, we 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 did actually. We were some of the first, I think, to use um, high quality thermal images. Um, we were lucky enough to know some bat biologists that were working with a with a company in California that were developing the state of the art infrared cameras for the military. And um, he 
uh, wanted to come to Belize, the guy who literally developed the camera and was prepared to bring one of his cameras down here to work with us on a film about bats and caves. And um, he came with the bat biologist and uh, we got some absolutely amazing images. Um, they were almost high def before that time. They're very high resolution and really very beautiful images as well. And they were new to the scene. And um, we would go into a cave and, uh, uh, you know, it would be pitch dark and we would crank up this camera. Uh, it took a while to actually resolve the image. But when you got it, the whole cave would light up and you, all the bats would be hanging there like light bulbs. And you could go in tight and you could see all the details on the bats. I mean, it was, it was a, a specta spectacular thing to have, certainly at that time. Yeah, and we did it in amber instead of black and white. So the amber really brought out the um, the the shape more than the uh, you know like like an infrared. It's thermal, so it's even better. Um, so it, and and we use it with all different kinds of animals because we had it here and we thought we might as well make the best of it. And um, so we were pretty lucky. And just recently, just recently, they started to use a military camera, uh, the BBC. But before that, nothing matched it. And, and, you know, what I noticed from that or what I was thinking about when I saw you guys in the cave with that technology was that um, in my experience, I've been in a couple of bat caves, one in South Africa and one in uh, Texas. And um, and we spent, you know, quite a lot of the day down in the cave, but we would have to do it in very small increments of time because of the mass amount of ammonia that was coming up from the guano uh, all over the ground. The, the humidity, the heat inside those caves is unbearable at times. It can really affect you and the gear. So when I was watching that and I saw you guys with a camera and a laptop and all this technology that was needed in those days to be able to get that image, how did, how did you guys manage that? Were you in the cave for long periods of time or did you have to keep coming out? How, how did it affect the well, gear? Uh, yeah, um, you know, the kind of caves that you're talking about there, we we have been in them. And uh, they're, they're usually the closed ones with with very little air ventilation. Um, we Most of the shots you saw there were done in big open caves where there was more air. And uh, we didn't have the ammonia problem. Although there is another problem that you get in those caves, and that's histo. Histo, right? Histoplasmosis. Histoplasmosis. It's a fungal um, lung disease. And if you've got a bad immune system, it can be very dangerous. Uh, so you, it's best to wear masks in the really covered ones. Um, and they're, they, they are, um, they're, they're certainly here in Belize. Quite frankly, I try and avoid going in those because they really are so very unhealthy. Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, it is one of those things when you're inside them, you know, you are thinking just about those elements that you can feel there and then and smell and <laughs> and, and the anything else that can affect you, uh, you know, on a permanent basis is kind of an afterthought a lot of the time, but can be so detrimental to your health. So well, you guys have had incredible, incredible experiences um, during your careers. If you had to pick one thing, and I know this is exceptionally hard, I struggle to do this, um, but if you had to pick one thing, what would you say was the most incredible experience you've had? Carol, do you want to start <laughs> with that one? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. He puts me on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess there's there's so many Um Oh, I guess um, I guess the most ex 
uh, exciting experiences that happened uh, in Africa. Basically, Africa was the place where, it, you know, it gets it gets your whole system fired, up, fired yeah. up. You know, for instance, like okay, for instance, one time we were out in the Makutukuti pans in uh, Botswana, and uh, we were looking for these little um, termites um, that live on the ground and just take you know debris down and build their nest and stuff and as we're looking at we forget we're walking in the cutty pans which you don't normally walk and Richard's ahead of me and we were parked under an acacia tree so we're walking and Richard's ahead of me and all of a sudden I'm standing there and I see Richard running past me like totally running past me and I'm thinking oh my God, what is he running from? And I look and there's lionesses chasing him. I'm going, he's actually running past me and he didn't tell me there's lionesses chasing me? Well, little did I know he was going to get the car to pick me up. In the meantime, I found the termites and I'm going, I found the termites. I said, but come and get me. So Richard came back and picked me up. And luckily, you know, I was like, that was like really, really scary. I mean, there, there, there are so many and there's, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, they, they, I mean, there's so many things we've done over the years, it's hard to choose which one of them. But in Venezuela, when we were doing the Anaconda film, we had the most amazing bit of luck there. Um, we were, it, it was a bit like Africa, these big ranches, and you could drive with a Land Rover or a uh, you know, vehicle with a, with a doormat. And uh, we were seeing, of course, a lot of different uh, a, 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 a bunch of animals there. And we saw a capybara um, beside the road. It was a female, and she was sitting there. Um, she looked, she, it was a time when they were going, going to be giving birth, so I was hoping we might find a mother with a baby or something uh, very close. And so we stopped <clears throat> and uh, set the camera up. We, we thought maybe she'd give birth, possible. And I sat there for about half an hour, and suddenly she started to give birth, amazingly. And I got the birth of three babies, one after the other, and they struggled out of the placenta, you know, out of the bag. And the black vultures would come down and pull the placenta off the babies and uh, carry it away to eat it, right? Which is another great plus of the story. And then suddenly a huge male capybara from another group comes stromping along the stream bank and encounters the babies. They were just getting to their feet. And right in front of camera, he destroyed all three of them. It was infanticide, rather like a lion does to rival cubs. And, I mean, to have that happen, we had a researcher studying uh, Capybara, uh, and we told her that evening what we'd seen in film, and she just couldn't believe it, you know. Yeah. So these things do sometimes happen yeah. on camera, yeah. and we were so lucky to get that. Yeah. The other thing but I wanted... There, there was, one other. You want to tell her something? I want one more thing. I want to say one more thing, and then I'll let Richard talk. Now, there's so many of them that even scientists, they, they assume things are going to happen, and then they don't know, they don't see them. But because we were with animals so long, for a long time, and we see them. So once we had a, it's a, a cantail. It's like a cotton mouth in the United States, a poisonous snake. We knew it was gravid, and we knew it was going to give birth. So what we did is we put it in the tank, and we we actually had a set bill for it for it when it's given to give birth. But we actually had a tank, and we were watching it overnight. So Richard would take the first time from like you know till two o'clock in the morning, and then I'll watch it from two o'clock in the morning until the next morning. Well, at two o'clock in the morning, it started to push, and I'm going, oh my God, Richard, it's starting to push. I says, let's get it down in the set. So we got it down into the set. 
and it actually gave birth, live birth, and and the young came out. So we heard this story about the young um, luring frogs. So we thought, how does it do that? So we built another set, and we put the young in the set. It coiled up, and at the tip of its tail, it had a little green color like chartreuse, like lime green color. And we put a little tiny frog in the set. So here we have... He coils up, brings his tail up in the air, wiggles this this green, you know, this green looking tip of his tail. And don't you think the frog was so mesmerized? It looked at it, thought it was a worm, a worm, came up, jumped up, grabbed it, and the snake ate it, struck it and ate it. It was incredible. That watching that, I, rem- I always remember. And that. scientists say this happens. This is probably why they have their little green tip on their tail, but nobody saw it. And when we saw and filmed it, we were so excited. I mean, I think we had a party after that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's what's so fantastic about wildlife filmmaking is I think those unexpected things that happen while you're uh, while you're, um, you know, in a production and, you know, it may be a different uh, animal that comes down and something happens in front of you and you're able to film it or something um, some behavior that's never been seen before and and that's what I get truly excited over uh, in this industry yes. Well, yes. you you guys, uh, I could speak to you guys for hours because there's so many great stories that you have to tell um, what I would like to do though is just very quickly at the end here is uh, talk about your Savannah guest house because I know you guys are living in Belize. You do all of your productions from home um, in Belize and you also have a guest house that I believe you have film crews come to and stay out while they're doing productions. But also it's for uh, the general public as, as a guest house for vacations. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we built this uh, this facility here way back in the 80s. Um, It was purely for filming, and it had a a cottage and a lab. And it was getting underused. You know, we'd have film crews staying with it. And, of course, you know, you have to diversify. Uh, We weren't getting as much of the big stuff as we were were previously. So we were looking to diversify and find other ways of of making a living. So we turned the the cottage... um, into a guest house. It's got three nice little rooms. And um, we have guests of all kinds coming down. Uh, of course, film crews stay here. It's perfect for them because we've got a big lab next door where they can spread all their equipment out. And they're either working on sets uh, with us or walking at the Belize Zoo uh, getting stuff. So um, it's proved to be a really nice facility. And um, through the years, it's got nicer and nicer, big trees up around it, a lot of plants. And uh, we have still have a few animals here. Uh, we don't keep animals unless we need to use them for filming. Um, and we sometimes borrow animals from the zoo for doing uh, some, you know, projects. But um, yes, Savannah Guest House is great. We get all people from all kinds of walks of life, and it's fascinating talking to them. Yeah, and what we do is uh, mainly, um, Rich has been doing this more now than me, is he takes them around and he shows them our place and he shows them how how uh, we get stuff 
like we get material in the tropical forest and how that's the only way we can get it. And he explains and we both explain and how we uh, get the stuff in some sets that we do have. So it makes it more exciting for tourists because they love to hear this. And then we have films that they can look at if they want. So well, they're not really tourists, they're guests. Yes, they're yeah, guests. Yeah, yeah. They're not the run of your mill. No. We tend to get people who are, uh, who are, who are into nature. We get a lot of people, uh, we get a lot of um, conservationists actually yeah. staying with us. Uh, so it's it's really great. And it's we a had a film experience. school. We, we also did a film student here too. We had two film schools uh, from the University of New Mexico in Las Cruz. So, and, and they're a film school oriented uh, school. So we taught them how to do documentaries because they're mostly into doing shorts and Hollywood films and stuff. So they had to take a course on documentaries. So... Now these students are coming down and doing shorts down here. So so we got them now. They're coming to Belize and doing films. So it's quite interesting. We, we actually made a series of films back here in 2000 for National Geographic. There were five films. They were environmental films. And what we did is we chose six students from, from Geographic, also from UK, and um, they stayed here a year, and we taught them virtually from scratch how to make wildlife documentaries. Yeah. And all those kids now are out there. Uh, they're in the business. They're producers. They're cameramans. And one of them is Mark McEwen. Yep, and he was one of our students here. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, it sounds like an incredible setup you've got there. Um, and what I'll do is, uh, I know you've got a web page about it on your website. Uh, on the masterwildlifefilmmaking.com uh, web page for this podcast episode, I will put a link for people to go and so they can see that. And uh, I think there's the booking details and everything on there. So listen, oh, thank you guys so much again for spending uh, the last hour with me here on the the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. It's been a true pleasure to speak to you. And um, yeah, I, I, it's going to be a great episode. Thank you so much. And you too. And if you're in Belize, come visit us, please. Yes, do that. I will do. Well, Thank you. Great pleasure. I hope we made some sense. <laughs> <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please leave a rating and a comment. And remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series. You can find out more information on wildlife filmmaking at masterwildlifefilmmaking.com where you'll find valuable free resources like downloadable reports and video tutorials. Thanks for listening.